Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. Thanks, um, thanks, Bernie, for that very nice introduction. Um, and thank you to all of you for coming along um, this evening, uh, especially to those people who have travelled a long way, um, and to those people who come from outside my field. Um, to those people in particular, you've braved the title. You're probably thinking, I'm going to make you feel guilty over the next 45 minutes or so, and I'll try not to do that, or if I do, I'll try to keep it as subtle as possible. <laughs> So some of the things I'm going to say aren't especially new. Uh, the ancient Greeks um, proposed that exercise, along, along with diet and food, are very important parts of our lifestyle. So here's a quote from Hippocrates over 2,000 years ago. And several centuries later, Galen, another famous ancient Greek physician, emphasized the importance of uh, motion. So the ancient Greeks were very much leading the way in terms of understanding the important things in life. And my own story links to Greece in a rather tenuous way, which is perfect for a presentation like this one. And it explains the gap that Bernie was talking about earlier on. So when I finished my undergraduate degree, um, I wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do. So I decided to spend a bit of time traveling and teaching English as a foreign language. So I moved to Greece. And an incident here in Marousi, in northern Athens, very much changed uh, my life. Um, the Greek state had just um, launched a new national lottery, a scratch card lottery. And there was enormous excitement, uh, and long queues were forming on street corners to buy tickets from vendors who were selling strips of these scratch card tickets. Mm. So I decided to join a queue, but was rudely pushed out of the way by a Greek chap who was obviously far too eager to get to the front of the queue. Uh, being British, I didn't make a fuss. I perhaps tuttered a little. <laughs> anyway, I got to the front of the queue, I bought my tickets, and I went away having enjoyed the excitement, but with relatively low expectations. Well, remarkably, it turned out that I had won. <laughs> Five million drachma, to be precise. It sounds an enormous amount, and to me at the time it was. It was a few thousand pounds. So what to do? I was here in Greece. I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do with my life. I was in my early 20s. This is what I looked like. And I was uncertain about my future. At the same time, I'd fallen in love with these classic BMW motorbikes, which you found many of in Greece at the time. And I had visions of myself driving around Greece on the back of one of these things, of course, crash helmet off, of course. But I decided, after very considerable thought, to take stock. I thought better of buying a motorbike. I decided instead to invest the money which I'd won it was a few thousand pounds, into a postgraduate degree. I decided to go to Loughborough to do a master's. I absolutely loved it. I probably wouldn't have chosen to do a master's otherwise. It was very tricky to access funds to support postgraduate degrees at that time. But I went to Loughborough. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I ended up doing rather well. I, I, I won a prize. I'm still very proud of that. After a brief hiatus lecturing in Northumbria for a year, I then returned to Loughborough to do a PhD with this chap, Professor Clyde Williams, who I'm delighted is here in the audience uh, today. 
So from an academic perspective, I feel as though we owe a lot to the ancient Greeks. And from a personal perspective, <laughs> I feel I owe a lot to modern uh, Greece. So back to the substance of, of, of my talk. Um, why do we need physical activity and how much is enough? Well, I'm going to try to tackle those questions. And I'm afraid it's not quite five minutes, but uh, I'll explain why later on. Um, and in the same time, I also want to tackle a couple of really quite popular and in many ways what I consider rather pervasive uh, myths. So, targeting the first question first, why do we need um, physical activity? Well, a main reason is because our physiology expects it. For millions of years, we had to be physically active to survive. Physical activity was essential in order to procure food. So when the genes that make up modern man were selected, they were selected within the context of very considerable physical activity. So for millions of years, physical activity was essential and being physically active was normal. And we don't have to go back very far in time to find a time where this was still the case. We're no longer hunter-gatherers, but physical activity was still essential largely through the physical activity of daily work. Now, of course, through development in engineering, machines can do the work of many people with the investment of very little in terms of energy. We find that in the workplace, we find it in our homes, and in extreme circumstances, we find it in our leisure. <laughs> So for millions of this is the United States, I should say. So, <laughs> so for millions of years, we had to be physically active. And it's only really in very recent years that this has become somewhat optional. We've engineered physical activity out of our lives. So just to try to give you a sense of perspective, um, I've transposed the last four million years of our evolution onto the lovely athletics track that we've got here at the University of Bath, just to try to illustrate what I'm talking about. So if we imagine we start four million years ago here on the start line with our early ancestors, we were already walking at this point. We looked very different to the way we look today, but there were many more similarities than there are differences. And we continued over millions of years of evolution to walk, hunt, jump, climb, gather, all of this being physical activity in order to survive alongside our evolution. And this continued for millions of years, physical activity constantly there in the background. Modern humans appeared somewhere on the home straight, and their physiology really isn't very different at all to the physiology of humans today. And we continued to hunt, to gather, to walk, to run, to climb, to do all of these things. Eventually, this was replaced through the physical activity of work, through things like the agricultural revolution, and so on. And this continued again for, for, for centuries, for thousands of years, until we get close to modern day. So if we think of our evolution in these terms, we've been active for 399 meters, and 99 centimeters, and maybe a half, and it's just in the last moments of time, the briefest moments of time, that physical activity has disappeared. And the perspective I'd like you to take for the rest of the talk 
is that we are expected to be physically active. We're expected by our physiology, expected by our evolution. And if we choose to be physically inactive, then at a fundamental biological level, we see a failure to maintain gene expression at the expected level, expected by our physiology. And as Frank Booth has proposed, the genes that require physical activity are also the disease susceptibility genes. So why do we need physical activity? Well, we've been moving for millions of years. We've only stopped in the last few decades. And not moving is not normal. So it shouldn't really come as any surprise that what the ancient Greeks proposed thousands of years ago has now been shown to be true. Physical activity affects every single cell in our bodies. And it's been shown to have enormous preventative potential and power in the context of many of the common diseases that affect us today. And a large proportion of our research here at the University of Bath seeks to try to understand how and why. What is the biology of all of this? What does physical activity do? Which pathways does it activate? How do those pathways explain how this is helpful in terms of health? Now, this is very much a story for another day. I'm not going to talk about the biological aspects of our work today, but I just will mention one study very, very briefly, because it's particularly topical. Um, we're involved in a study with the European Space Agency. It's topical because Tim Peake is up in the International Space, Agent, uh, uh, Space Station as, as we speak. And as part of an international team later this year, we will be putting a group of young, healthy men into bed for 60 days. They're going to lie down with their head below their feet, unable to get out of bed even to go to the toilet or to have a shower. They have to stay in that position. And the European Space Agency are interested in this because it's a surrogate for space flight, a surrogate for exposure to microgravity. The loss of adaptations are very similar to what you see in space. And what we're interested in is the biology of what happens when you take physical activity away. And so this is an opportunity to understand in a very unique sense, why and how physical activity generates these beneficial um, uh, biological um, uh, responses. But like I said, that really is a very much a story for another day. So I've told you why we need physical activity. So the big question then, of course, is how much is enough? Well, this is where technology can be our friend. Um, in the last decade or so, there have been the development of tools to assess physical activity in a way that was never possible in the past. So these are instruments that, that we've been using for some years now. You can wear them in one of two positions. They capture information around your heart rate and your movement, and they estimate energy expenditure above rest. And this is the kind of information that you get. So here's energy expenditure over the course of a 24-hour period. So this is sleep, and here the person's got up, and this is the energy expenditure of daily life, the ebb and flow of energy expenditure through physical activity over the course of a typical day. So we can assess physical activity in a way that was never possible in the past. 
And we have very clear guidelines, which are public-facing guidelines. For example, these on the NHS web, uh, website, which gives a very clear statement about how much physical activity we need to do. So the guidelines for adults, I don't know if you can see it down here, it says at least 150 minutes of moderate intensity aerobic activity, such as cycling or walking, every week. So we have the tools to assess physical activity. We have clear guidelines. So in theory, it should be easy to answer what is a very common question, similar to the question that Bernie was posing earlier on. Am I doing enough of the right type of physical activity uh, for health? Well, we were aware of a variety of different guidelines around the world, so we decided to look at the consistency and the comparability across those guidelines. These are the guidelines we looked at. I don't expect you to take all the information in on this slide. We have 12 different recommendations that we examined. Many of these were from North America, but it included the one from the Department of Health here in the UK. And the reason I'm showing you this information is because, ostensibly, at face value, many of these recommendations look quite similar. They talk about 30 minutes of moderate intensity activity, four, day, four or five days of the week, or a sum of 150 minutes of activity, and so on. But this is what we found. So these are the 12 recommendations. And this shows, in a sample of middle-aged men, based on analysis of the same raw data, and this is the proportion of men who either exceeded a given recommendation or failed to meet a given recommendation. And what you can see <clears throat> is that based on analysis of the same raw data, using these very sophisticated tools, we could say that anywhere between 11% and 98% of this sample of middle-aged men would be described as either meeting or not meeting a given recommendation. So are these men active or inactive? Well, clearly, based on this analysis, it's extremely difficult to say. So actually, it's surprisingly difficult to answer this common question, am I doing enough of the right type of activity for health? And it will depend to a large degree which recommendation you pick up off the shelf. So why is this? Why is there this discrepancy between recommendations when ultimately they're based on the same underlying data? Well, some of the differences are quite technical. They relate to what people count as a moderate intensity exercise or activity and, and so on. But one of the main reasons is actually tucked away in the technical report which underpins the UK guidelines. You'll find a similar statement in the guidelines in the United States. And this is the statement that I'm referring to. And the statement basically indicates that, and this is an interesting wording, it's possible that some people might interpret the guidelines to be stating that the total cumulative activity required per day, and yet the research informing the guidelines is actually based on additional activity over and above that associated with normal daily living. So it's not 150 minutes actually, it's 150 minutes on top of normal lifestyle activities. So if we go back to the recommendations, if we look at the guidance again, it makes no reference to that. It says 150 minutes, it doesn't say that it's on top of normal lifestyle activities. So that's one problem. Another problem relates to the nature of the evidence. 
The recommendations that we have in this country are essentially almost 20 years old, and the evidence that underpins those recommendations is often much older than that. And they collected information about activity using self-report. They asked people to write down in response to some kind of a questionnaire how much activity they were doing in a given day, a week, or, or, and so on. And according to the answers, if you just visualize this conceptually, you would be able to plot that in terms of time if you wanted to. And so here we have energy expenditure in, a, in the same units I talked about earlier on over time. And people told you that they did activity, so you could plot that activity onto a graph like this one. You could label it if you wanted to, and you could sum it up, and you come up with a value. And so this individual did 63 minutes of activity. And this information has provided the basis for the current recommendations. Of course, when we come along using these new technologies, this is the picture that we get. So energy expenditure again, in the same way as I showed you earlier on, over time, here's sleep, and then all of this stuff is the ebb and flow of energy expenditure I was talking about earlier on. Here are the two bouts of activity that the people told you about. But look at all this other stuff. There's physical activity here. Some of this is crossing this critical moderate intensity threshold. And if you sum all of this, you come up with an answer of 134 minutes. So when you start to use these new technologies but interpret the evidence in the context of these old recommendations, you have, of course, a mismatch. So one of the take-home messages, I suppose, from this perspective, is that new technologies and old recommendations are incompatible. So <clears throat> how much activity should we be doing after accounting for these troublesome normal lifestyle activities and when using these very accurate technologies. Well, we've recently completed analysis which helps, or we think will help, to try to answer this question. And I apologize, this is a rather busy slide um, for those people who are unfamiliar with looking at these kinds of things. But basically what we did is we recruited 300 people from the local area, many of them patients who were taking part in another study that we were conducting at the time. Each dot on this figure represents a person. And we collected the information using these highly accurate and sensitive uh, devices. And we then plotted the time engaged in activity above a moderate intensity relative, and, and, so, and I should say that that includes these kinds of activities, so some of the things you might be thinking of, but other things that you may not be thinking of. And we also plotted that against something called the physical activity level. This basically tells you how much energy you burn through physical activity, and it's a ratio. It's a ratio of your total energy expenditure divided by your basal metabolic rate. So it's basically how much energy you burn through physical activity. We can then look at the relationship across the sample as a whole. We know, based on information from the Scientific Advisory Committee for Nutrition, we know how much energy a typical person in the UK expends. And it's a PAL of 1.63. So we can insert that into our derived relationship. And that tells us that a person at the UK average is doing around about 750 minutes 
of at least moderate intensity physical activity a week. It seems like a lot, and I'll come back to that later on, but it's noteworthy that not one person was doing less than 150 minutes a week. So if we just use the 150 minute threshold, we would say that all 300 people were meeting the recommendation, which would be highly unlikely unless the people around here are an unusual uh, reflection of the society as a whole. We can also take the recommended PAL from the World Health Organization. So they have a recommended PAL, it's in their report on human energy requirements, and the recommended PAL is 1.75. And we can insert that into this same relationship, and that comes up with a value close to 1,000 minutes. So the bad news is that to meet the World Health Organization recommendation for engagement in appropriate levels of activity, you need to be doing a thousand minutes a week. But the good news is that for somebody already at the UK median, they're already doing 750 minutes a week. And to go from the median to this recommended level would require an increase of around about 4% of waking activity time. So even though these numbers seem very high, as a proportion of the time that we spend awake, it's a much smaller proportion. And just to put this into context, this recommended PAL from the World Health Organization happens to be the same as the energy expended through physical activity in modern-day hunter-gatherers. So conceptually, it also seems to be an appropriate target. And just for those people who are really interested from my field in particular, this relationship is almost exactly the same as the relationship reported by the Institute of Medicine some years ago. So just to try to present that data in a slightly different way to understand what this means if you're a person who wants to take some messages away, then what I'm saying is that if you think of activity as a proportion of waking time, the current recommendation says, and it says it very clearly, even though the technical report doesn't mean this, it says that you should do 150 minutes of moderate intensity activity or above a week. That's only 2% of your waking week. What I'm saying is that based on our analysis, the current median in the UK is closer to 11%. 11% of waking time spent doing moderate intensity activity or above. And based on our analysis, for somebody at the median to increase their activity to the required level would require an increase of around about 4% of waking time to achieve this absolute target of 1,000 minutes. So coming back to Bernie's point, it's not five minutes a day, unfortunately. Based on this analysis, it's closer to 1,000 minutes a week. But of course, most people are already doing very considerable amounts of activity. They're just not aware of that. And don't forget that even though these numbers sound very high, we're still saying that the rest of the time, which is a large proportion of time, of course, you don't spend engaged in activity. And just to put this into context to make sure that you don't think we're dealing with some kind of rogue data set based on people in the southwest or the local Bath area, this are data from other studies. Um, two of these are our own studies, but the others are from other groups uh, around the world. And what we show here is minutes of moderate intensity activity or above. 
and um, they were all collected using highly sensitive, highly accurate devices with close to 100% of wear time. And for those who are interested, I think this is a very critical factor. And if we insert onto here what we've estimated as our national median, it would be close to about 750 minutes, and the target would be 950 minutes. So it doesn't appear, when you start to look at other data sets, as though this is something to do with an unusual nature of our data set. Whereas if you look at this 150-minute target, it looks clearly very different to that that you find using these highly accurate uh, devices. So it's a myth that we need to do 150 minutes of moderate intensity activity a week. It's not what the policymakers meant. It's been misrepresented on websites such as NHS Choices and so on. But this is only really a problem when we come to start using these very highly accurate and sensitive devices to monitor our physical activity. Of course, these are becoming more and more popular. It's estimated that in 2016 alone, more than 100 million of these will be sold around the world. So this is a problem which is only going to become more important. And I think ultimately, clearly, the guidelines are going to have to change. But one answer to the question of how much activity is enough would be a thousand minutes a week. But physical activity is much more interesting than moderate intensity activity alone. And I just want to show you an example using um, two people, fictional characters, Bill and Ben. This was published in an American journal. I, I don't think they appreciated the significance of Bill and Ben. <laughs> but I've become quite attached to them nowadays. But anyway, so what this shows is a physical activity trace like the ones I've been showing you before. And each one of these panels is the same. But what we've done is we've shaded and highlighted the different behaviors that count. So for your physical activity level, the amount of energy you burn through physical activity, Everything above rest counts. And even though the pattern between Bill and Ben is very, very different, if you look at their PAL, it's remarkably similar. Whereas if you look at moderate intensity activity or vigorous intensity activity, then Bill is doing much better than Ben. Whereas if you look at sedentary time, because Ben is spending most of the time moving around, Ben is doing far better than Bill. So based on an analysis of the same raw data, you could say that these two people were the same. You could say that Bill is doing better than Ben. Or you could say that Ben is doing better than Bill. And you could just imagine the conversation in a cafe or a bar if you were sitting down with Bill and Ben and you were talking about physical activity and perhaps Bill would sit back in his chair looking rather smug with himself saying, I managed two hours of exercise today, Ben. How did you do? And perhaps Ben would sit in his chair looking rather uncomfortable, shuffling around a little bit and say, oh, well, I, I just didn't manage to fit it in today. I just didn't seem to have the time. Well, you could imagine the look on Bill's face if you told him that Ben actually burned more energy through physical activity than he did. 
But perhaps I'm being a bit unkind on Bill. Maybe Ben's the smug one. Maybe Ben goes home at the end of the day and torments on Bill and says, Bill, he's just done another two hours of exercise today and he just doesn't seem to be losing any weight. I don't know why he's even bothering or something like this. And maybe at this point his wife might chip in and say, oh, Ben, you're just lucky. You've got a fast metabolism. There's no such thing as a fast metabolism. Ben is active. It's a different kind of activity. He never sits down. He's constantly on the move. He's burning enormous amount of energy. And this heterogeneity, this heterogeneity across dimensions where you could say people are the same or, or different or different in the opposite way, isn't just relevant for Bill and Ben. It's actually quite common. And here's an analysis, and again, I apologize, there's lots of information on this slide, um, an analysis which demonstrates this fact. And for those people who are interested, here we have time engaged in moderate intensity activity against this thing called PAL, vigorous intensity activity against PAL, and sedentary time against PAL. And each dot on here represents a person. These are relatively young people recruited from around Bath. And there are some quite good relationships for some of these parameters. But you start to see some pretty interesting clusters. You get some people here, for example, who burn a lot of energy without doing much moderate intensity activity. Or other people who do a lot of moderate intensity activity but don't burn much energy. It's even more polarized for vigorous intensity activity. Look at these people down here. Enormous variability in energy expenditure, huge values for PAL, but with no vigorous intensity activity. And down here we've got people at the same energy expenditure, the same PAL, some people doing this by spending 60% of the time sedentary, and others constantly on the move, spending only 20% of the time sedentary. Some of these people have been given names in the literature, Active couch potatoes, people who go to the gym, sit around a lot of the time. Perhaps these are your fidgeters or busy bees. But a kind of main take-home message here is that no two people expend energy through physical activity in precisely the same way. And there's no single measure which captures all the relevant information about a person's physical activity. So we shouldn't just be thinking in terms of things like moderate intensity activity. Think of poor old Bill. If we think of the quote from Einstein here, he's talking about intellectual capacity. If we think of that instead in terms of physical activity, if we assessed Bill and only counted his moderate intensity activity, he would be told he's a failure. Sorry, Bill, you're just not doing enough. But the reality is he's actually burning a very considerable amount of energy through physical activity, and he's doing really quite well. And I think the other implication of this is that people will often be misinformed about the nature of their own activity if they focus on just one physical activity dimension or outcome. And I think this often applies to people when, they, when you ask them about their activity, they reflect and they think about certain things. I go to the gym. That's my activity. But you forget about all of the other stuff, and that could sometimes be just as important. Or some people say, oh, no, I don't do any activity. I, I, I just can't stand it. It's not my cup of tea at all. And actually, they could be burning remarkably large amounts of energy through physical activity, but they're not even aware of it, because the things they are doing, they don't think of as activity. They think of them as something else. 
So is there another way forward? Well, one of the things that we proposed a few years ago is that at the very least we could integrate across the different physical activity dimensions. And we proposed, based on the analysis we did previously, that we might be able to do something like a traffic light system for physical activity. And so these are genuine traffic light wheels, if you like, similar to those used for food labelling, based on data that we measured in relatively young people. And this is what it might look like for an individual. So this is person 2, person 8, person 28, and, and so on. So person 2 is doing relatively poorly across all of the dimensions. But if we only looked at their PAL, for example, their energy burn through physical activity, we might say that this person's the same as that person. But clearly, this person's actually doing quite well for some other things. Or, if we looked at just sedentary time, for example, we might say that these two people were the same. But actually, according to other aspects of their behaviour, they're clearly quite different. And this was the basis for a trial, an intervention study that we've been running now over the last few years that we're calling MIPACT. It's funded by the Medical Research Council under something called the National Prevention Research Initiative. And our starting point was this multidimensional nature to physical activity. So we started off working with an information graphics company to tackle the problem of how to present information to people in a way that they could understand it. We then worked with a group of patients to make sure that the visualizations that we'd come up with made sense to them, that they could use it, that we were providing the information that they wanted. And we then worked with a technology company to develop a platform to make sure that we could present this information to people uh, in, uh, 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 in the form of an intervention. And these are some screenshots that the platform that we ultimately developed. So when we talked to our patients, you could see that the traffic-like scheme for presenting information about physical activity was very popular, so this remained. But people wanted a bit more information. They wanted to know not just that they were green, they wanted to know how close they were to the target. They also wanted information about precisely how the different aspects of their behaviour contributed to the different dimensions. And so they wanted information over time showing where they had done the things that counted. So, for example, here they wanted it clearly labelled where this was vigorous <coughs> intensity activity. So they wanted information about patterns and they wanted summary statistics both in time and energy. They also wanted the potential to be able to review their activity. And so this shows a trace over the course of the week. This shows where they were in terms of the overall summary statistics relative to the target. And they wanted the opportunity to see the kind of what if, what if they were to do new things. So we created a drop-down menu with a multiple, uh, multiple different examples of the types of activity that they might want to do. And we also allowed them to label specific things. So they could tag this, let's say it's walking the dog, and they could say, I'm going to walk the dog another two or three times a, a week. And they could then reinsert that into their uh, profile to see how this would change their scores. So here's an example. This person's decided they're going to do some quite demanding structured exercise. And they're going to do it here, here, and here. And this is the impact on their profile. So before, they were doing no vigorous intensity activity. And on the back of doing this, it would go from here to this green uh, bar. So a huge change in vigorous intensity activity, 
but actually based on this change, only a very modest or subtle change in terms of calorie burn or energy uh, uh, expended through physical activity. So this is the platform we developed. I'm very <coughs> pleased to say that this is now being, as Bernie mentioned at the beginning, used within an NHS test bed uh, in, the, in the southwest as part of the Diabetes Digital Coach. It's a two million pound uh, program which will be running over the next uh, couple of years. And hopefully, we will get to a position where people who need to try to manage their physical activity can do so in a very supportive way using a platform which helps them to understand the impact of their changes. But a kind of key message here, and this is one of the most important messages of all, is that we don't have to do the same thing. There are multiple ways to obtain the health benefits from physical activity. We have enormous choice. Think back to Bill and Ben. I would argue that both of those profiles were really quite positive. So I just want to move on to tackling something slightly different now. Um, this um, incredibly popular um, uh, myth. It's been around for a few years. Um, physical activity is not as important as diet, sometimes captured with the sentiment you can't outrun a bad diet. It's been around for, for, for decades, but it very much gained uh, a boost last year with the publication of this editorial in the British Journal of Sports Medicine with a rather provocative title, It's Time to Bust the Myth of Physical Inactivity and Obesity. You Cannot Outrun a Bad Diet. It provokes some quite interesting cartoons, um, and it certainly caught the headlines in many international news outlets. Um, this is the story that appeared in The Guardian, for, for, for example, but it really was a very big story at the time. And so the argument is that exercise is good for you from a health perspective, but it won't help you lose weight. So how much truth is there in this uh, statement? Well, we have some results from one of our own studies which helps to very much tackle that uh, question. And I'll just explain the study design before I talk through what's on the, the slide. Um, we recruited volunteers from the local community, uh, middle-aged men. Um, Bernie, if you're looking for a study in the future, we might have one for, for you. Um, and they were put onto an exercise program, a six-month exercise program. And one group were in a control group. They were asked to maintain their normal lifestyles. The other group were on this exercise intervention. And what this slide shows is physical activity energy expenditure here over time. So this is the control group at baseline, and this is the intervention group at baseline. So about the same at baseline. And this is the amount of energy expended through exercise. Now, in week 18, these men were exercising for four hours a week. They were doing this in the lovely sports training village here at the university. They were exercising at an intensity of around about 70% of their aerobic capacity. It's quite a high intensity. So four hours a week at a high intensity by the end of the, the, the program. And at that point, this was responsible for an increase in their physical activity energy expenditure of about 15% and it increased total energy expenditure by less than 10%. Now, that less than 10% could be critically important. Let's say it's 10%. It might be enough to prevent weight gain. It might be enough to cause you to lose a bit of weight. And these people did lose weight. But the perception, and this comes back to the statement, you can't outrun a bad diet. The perception is, perhaps, that four hours of effort deserves better 
than an increase in energy expenditure of 10%. So there's a mismatch, at least in people's perceptions, and I talk about this with my wife all the time because she's just started running. There's a perception, there's a mismatch between the perception about how much you get in return for the, end, for the time that you've put in. And so this, in some ways, supports the statement you can't outrun a bad diet. But, and this is deliberately a very big but, sorry, that's a weekly exercise <laughs> was only four hours out of 112 waking hours. What about non-exercise physical activity over the other 108 hours? Well, this is phenomenally important, and here's a slide which makes that, that point. But there is no doubt in my mind that physical activity is crucially important to energy balance. And we can say that because physical activity energy expenditure explains the variance in total energy expenditure. So again, there's a lot of information on this slide, so I'll just take you through it step by step. So here we've got daily energy expenditure in kilocalories per day. And we've got it for basal metabolic rate, the amount of energy just from being alive. We've got physical activity energy expenditure, and then this small component called dietary-induced thermogenesis, which I'm just going to ignore for today. And we've got the data for 90 middle-aged men in rank order for total energy expenditure. So we've got people here burning 2,500 kilocalories a day, and people up here burning over 4,000 kilocalories a day. Now, if we look across the sample as a whole, basal metabolic rate is essentially pretty much flat. And the variation in total energy expenditure is explained by variation in physical activity energy expenditure from just a few hundred kilocalories down here to a couple of thousand kilocalories up here. So physical activity energy expenditure in total is enormously important, perhaps not through running, but other forms of physical activity. And just to put this into context, the difference between someone down here and someone up here is over half a million calories a year. That's an enormous amount of energy. If you express it in terms of fat tissue, adipose tissue, it's equivalent to more than 70 kilograms, 11 stone of fat. No one can argue that that is not important from an energy balance uh, perspective. So whilst you might not be able to outrun a bad diet, I would strongly argue that you can certainly outmove one. But physical activity is not just important for energy balance. We often get preoccupied with weight loss, with um, trying to lose weight. But actually, physical activity has lots of other benefits. And this is one of our studies which I think makes this in a very demonstrable uh, way. Um, it was published in the Journal of Physiology a, a couple of uh, years ago. Um, I'll just explain the study design before I move on to a couple of slides in terms of results. We recruited on this occasion young men who we wanted to be relatively healthy at the beginning. And we overfed them by 50%. So they were consuming 50% more energy than they normally would. And they also reduced their activity. And so we were creating an energy surplus. They were going to gain weight. We know they were going to gain weight and we knew how much by. And we had another group who did exactly the same thing, but they also did a daily bout of exercise, exercise every day. And we fed them a little bit more. 
to make up for the fact that they were doing this daily bout of exercise. So both groups were gaining weight. One group was doing exercise, the other group was not. And these are some of the results. So we're getting a little bit into the biology here, uh, but I won't go too far. This shows the serum insulin response to a glucose or sugar solution. It's the amount of insulin which is required to remove that glucose, that sugar, from your blood. The lower the response, the healthier you are, the less insulin you need to remove the glucose from your blood. This is what it was like at baseline in the group that were overfed and reduced their activity but with no exercise. Each one represents an individual. It more than doubled after the intervention. It went up. They got less healthy. They've moved one step towards developing things like diabetes, just in a very acute, short-term sense. Look at what happened in the exercise group. The same energy surplus. Both groups were consuming over 17,000 kilocalories, more than they needed. They were all gaining weight. But look at the effect of exercise. They've gained weight, but without the negative consequences of that gain in weight. And we can, as we often do in many studies like this one, we can dive into the tissue and measure changes within the tissues. And again, this is dipping a little bit into the biology, but when we gain weight, we put on the weight in our fat tissue, our adipose tissue, and what we wanted to see was whether the exercise offered some protective effect even within the tissue where you are storing your energy. And it does. This slide shows the relative gene expression. You don't need to worry too much about what that means for lots of individual genes. We've got the group that was just gaining weight, the group that was gaining weight with exercise. And a value of one basically means no change. And hopefully what you can see, just looking at the patterns, is that for the group that were just gaining weight, there's some really quite big changes for some genes up, some genes down. Whereas for the group that did daily exercise, the changes were much smaller, or sometimes non-existent. So even within the tissue where you're storing extra energy, if you do a daily bout of exercise, you don't see the, uh, the, the negative effects of that weight gain. And this story was published around about the time of Thanksgiving, and in the lead-up to Christmas, it made the headlines in literally hundreds of countries around the world. Some newspapers reported it in a very positive way, in a very interesting way, in a very um, accurate way. Here's one from the New York Times. Uh, for over a week, it was the, one of the most popular stories uh, within uh, the New York Times. And it was a, a joy to read the article that the journalist had produced. Um, here in the UK, we got a slightly different uh, slant. Uh, this is the headline from the Daily Mail with the rather provocative... <laughs> Uh, title and of course they've completely misrepresented the article as well but one of the questions that we were asked very frequently by um, journalists who were interested in this story was well this was daily bouts of exercise it was quite long it was quite intense what about other forms of exercise well we're in the middle of doing a follow-up study to this and so we'll know the answers to those questions uh, relatively soon but here's just one study which I think indicates that we don't have to do very demanding exercise to get these additional benefits from physical activity and exercise. And I'll just explain what's on this slide before explaining um, uh, 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 
how I can make uh, that statement. So this slide shows plasma glucose concentrations over several hours. And we fed people a meal here and a meal here. And you can see that the glucose goes up. It goes up um, quite considerably after a meal and slowly comes back down. You eat another meal, it goes back up and then slowly comes back down. And this was when people were in the lab and they were just sitting there. Now, having high glucose concentrations for a long period of time is a bad thing. We don't want the glucose hanging around. We want to get it out of the blood as quickly as we can. So this is what happened when people just came into the lab and they sat there and ate their meals. In another trial, on another occasion, they came in and we asked them to do just two minutes of activity, just walking around every 20 minutes. Look at the impact on their blood glucose. So it's gone up, but then look how much lower it is over the rest of the day. If you plot the area under the curve, it looks some, something like this. So this is what it would be like in the sitting trial. This is what it was like in the breaking sitting trial, almost halved through a very modest amount of activity. So even relatively short bouts of lower intensity activity can have a very powerful effect on the interaction with our diet and on physiological outcomes. So it's a myth that you can't outrun a bad diet, and it's a myth for several reasons. One is that whilst you might not be able to outrun it, you can certainly outmove it. Secondly, we can show quite clearly that relatively modest amounts of uh, activity can lessen the effects, the negative effects of diet. And thirdly, if you think of our overfeeding study, even if you're gaining weight, you see enormous benefits from uh, a daily bout of exercise. And really, this is a rather silly statement. I mean, we've been around, we've, we've known, or we've at least suspected for millions of years that diet and physical activity go hand in hand. And a lot of our research at Bath seeks to understand the relative benefits of diet and physical activity alongside each other. So, just to start to wrap up uh, this talk, um, what are the take-home messages? Well, the first one, I suppose, is if somebody pushes in front of you in a queue, <laughs> let them. You never know what might happen. Uh, and, of course, don't buy a motorbike. Invest in your education <laughs> instead. Although I never know, I would never know what would have happened if I had bought them. <laughs> but on a more serious note, why do we need physical activity? Well, we need it because our bodies expect it. We've had it for millions of years. If we don't provide it, we're doing something unusual, abnormal. Our physiology doesn't like it. How much is enough? Well, I think at the moment, in spite of us suspecting that physical activity is important since the time of the ancient Greeks, we still can't absolutely say. The current guidelines give funny answers. The current recommendations on our pages aren't even faithful to the technical report which underpins them. I think at the very least we need to be thinking in terms of different dimensions, and many of these are things that we might not even think of as physical activity. So are you doing enough? Well, I think it's extremely difficult to judge. A lot of people have misconceptions 
a misunderstanding of what physical activity means. And I think the only way people can really understand is through some kind of an assessment. But of course, the question also will depend largely on your goals and, of course, your preferences. If you don't want to go to the gym and break into a sweat, there are a variety of different things that you can do. Everyday movements, many of those you might not even think of as physical activity because you might be doing it for some other reason. And if you incorporate these things into your lifestyle, you can see huge changes in energy balance. You can see benefits in terms of our physiology, our health, and of course you will see benefits in terms of the risk of disease. You can do that without even breaking into a sweat. If, on the other hand, you like that, perhaps you like competitive sport, maybe you like the buzz of doing different types of activity or exercise classes, then you can do this. It will have enormous benefits in terms of health. It will improve your fitness, one of the best predictors of future mortality. It will help you even when you're gaining weight. It will offer a considerable degree of protection. Don't expect it to manipulate energy balance, or at least not as much as you might like it to. And it will offer some enormous benefits from a health perspective. So a main message from my talk is that we need to think of physical activity in different ways. These things are very helpful for some people, but the other things, the everyday movements, might be more relevant for other people. I like doing this because I know I can then spend lots of time sitting at my desk, which sadly I have to do, and I can fit this in around that. But other people might like alternative strategies. So I'd like to finish there, but I'd just like to finish by acknowledging my many collaborators and colleagues and, and research students. I was going to try to list them and I realised it was going to be impossible and I was worried about missing some people out. I've been standing here, but really this is the work of many, many people. And I just get to stand here and take a lot of the, the, the credit. I think the other thing I'd like to say is that I really want to acknowledge the amazing contribution of our research participants. A couple of years, we worked out that more than a 1,000 people from the local community had taken part in our studies. I never cease to be amazed by the altruistic nature of people. They come, they take part in, their stu in, our, in our studies. We do remarkable things to them. Muscle biopsies, adipose biopsies, blood samples, six months of an exercise intervention. They don't get anything for it. They're doing it in many ways for the good of the science, and they also perhaps appreciate taking part but an amazing uh, and remarkable uh, uh, achievement. And of course, I'd like to thank the funders who fund our work. Uh, it really wouldn't be possible. These studies are phenomenally expensive and time-consuming. They take years uh, to complete, and we wouldn't be able to do it without their uh, support. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.